welcome to the Open Government Podcast. I'm Richard Pietro. And I'm Samir Vasa. Each episode of the Open Government Podcast, we bring you an interview with someone working on open government and citizen engagement in their community. And today we have Luca Pisterzi, the Informatics and Analytics Program Lead for the Ontario Brain Institute, a provincially funded, not-for-profit research center seeking to maximize the impact of neuroscience. The OBI creates convergent partnerships between researchers, clinicians, industry, patients, and their advocates to foster discovery and deliver innovative products and services. And the reason we have Luca with us today is because the OBI has initiated Brain Code, which is a very clever type of open data repository. As a matter of fact, the OBI refers to Brain Code as a Swiss army knife of brain research. Luca, why is that? Well, it's interesting that you say that. I guess you might call it a Swiss Army knife um, based on uh, one way you might look at it is based on the number of different types of data it holds. So a little bit about the Ontario Brain Institute. We fund um, clinical programs focused in neuroscience uh, across the province, and we're working with over 35 different research institutes, hospitals, and universities across Ontario um, and uh, we're basically funding research in five different uh, programs. We call them integrated discovery programs. Uh, there's one is in cerebral palsy, one is in epilepsy, one is in neurodevelopmental disorder, so that includes autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, and intellectual disability. One is in depression, and one is in neurodegenerative diseases, so that includes ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and various other kinds of dementias. Um, so that's one thing, one way you might consider it a Swiss Army knife, where those different programs and the data they generate will be all coming into brain code. Um, another way you might look at it sort of in another dimension is the different kinds of data that are being captured in these programs. So uh, some of the data that is being captured includes uh, imaging data, clinical data, so um, tests uh, and surveys and that sort of thing. Imaging data, clinical data, um, so that includes the clinical surveys and assessments, some genomics data and proteomics data uh, among some of the kinds of data. So you might look at it from that angle and say, well, there are many different kinds of uh, data that could be analyzed for one specific disorder. So another way you might look at it is in terms of the different standards that are in place for the different types of data that we collect. So the same types of uh, imaging um, protocols, so the same images are being captured across the five different programs so that you could make that comparison across the different disorders. So let's say for some reason a scientist thinks there's a correlation between a certain type of brain structure in someone who has Parkinson's and someone who has depression, for example. You could analyze the two images um, based on this standard that's in place. So that's why we like to look at it as a Swiss Army knife. Basically, it allows you to do these many different kinds of things. That's amazing. And I actually want to just build on that idea of standards. And I, that's part of what brain, makes brain code unique is that basically you, you have a very rigorous standardization approach. And one of the issues that people have around open data in general is the idea of standards. There's so many things out there that are, whether released or not, but they don't actually talk to each other or you can't really compare apples to apples, as they say. How has brain code done its work in trying to ensure those standards uh, and enforce them at the same time? And then what kinds of results have you seen because you've got standards instead of just a mishmash of all kinds of data? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. So basically, we draw on wealth of experience in Ontario. So I think we should be really, really uh, proud of all the great neuroscience going on uh, in the province. And what we've done is we've um, we've polled our scientists and we've said, so if you needed to come up with a, uh, a specific clinical test to assess depression, which clinical test would you use? And basically, this process is, is it's kind of del- it's called a Delphi process, where you sort of drive agreement through a successive round of questions, and you narrow it down to the one test that uh, that you use based on a consensus method. So everyone agrees that okay, yeah, this is the test that we'll use to assess depression in all five of our programs. And of course, the scientists are free to use any other types of uh, tests they wish to use um, within the program, but uh, they do include the one clinical test that they've agreed to use um, in that specific uh, in that specific case. So that's how we keep the standards in place. And that way, when you go back and revisit the data, you may have all these other tests, but you have this common test across all the programs. So we've done that for a set of demographic variables, so things like you know age, um, handedness, and that sort of thing. Um, and we've also done it for uh, clinical assessments. So we've got about um, we've got seven or eight of those as well that are spread out across the programs, and they're age uh, appropriate as well. So. You know, some of our programs focus on on the young. Some of them focus on the very old. So, for example, cerebral palsy is in the very young, and neurodegeneration tends to be in the older groups. So, there are tests that are age appropriate, of course. So, we put in standards in place to the extent possible. We we're also working to standardize imaging, like I mentioned before, so that you know the same types of MRI images are available for comparison across the program. And again, we do this by drawing on this incredible wealth of, of you know research experience that we have in the province. And and actually, that's one of the things, the other element of all this that should be noted is that typically a lot of this information is kept within one bank of research or, or a certain researcher, and that information is not easily shared. But you guys have instituted a kind of zone or three sets of zone for accessing data and the type of data that different researchers and the public at large can have access to, and it's very much curated uh, by the OBI. So can you explain the zone system that you guys have inv- have implemented for access to data? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. I mean, I wouldn't call it open to anyone and everyone. Um, there are controls in place to make sure that privacy and security are maintained for the data. Um, but the basic idea behind the zone structure is, you know, we have scientists who are collecting certain kinds of data and they collect this data with informed consent from our participants. And these consent forms list out everything that will happen to the data, so the types of data that will be collected and that it will be shared. But by and large, the data that will be shared outside of that particular program will be done so it'll, it'll go through a sort of de-identification or it'll undergo a risk analysis so that uh, any information that could be used to identify somebody will be removed. And what you get at the end is data that has been stripped of all information that could link the data back to you, but it's still informative information. So to protect this data, we also have uh, other kinds of measures like data use agreements and that sort of thing that prohibit the re-identification um, of, uh, of, of anybody from that data. Um, and, and, you know, there's a process to accessing this data as well. So it, it, it involves a research ethics board, um, and a, uh, a data access request, which outlines what, which data you want and what you plan on doing with it. 
I get but excited. The, Sorry, I just get excited <laughs> when everyone talk anyone talks about privacy and security. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you wanted to build on that? Or uh, no, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's it's a it, you know it's a pretty robust process, and we've got some really good governance behind it, which is all available on our website. Um, and uh, so, I think you know, if anyone's interested, they should definitely check it out. So I'm going to I'm going to push you a little further on that. So you're talking about all these controls in place for privacy security and obviously mm-hmm. health information is sensitive. So you mm-hmm. have to build that in. So one of the things that we run into a lot of times when we're dealing with government or even the private sector around uh, releasing data, opening up data is 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 the oh, we're going to breach privacy if we do if we do. Even though that's mm-hmm. not necessarily the case and there are processes and systems as you identified that that can help mitigate some of that kind of stuff. How do you communicate that and especially as a privacy by design ambassador how do you start communicating the idea that privacy doesn't mean close everything up privacy doesn't mean keep everything shuttered behind doors but privacy means making smart decisions about how you share things how do you how do you communicate that what are the ways that the uh the obi has done that and what are the ways that you do that with your partners and stakeholders that's a a very good question. Um, so I think the key uh, behind uh, our approach to it is transparency. Um, we we are very clear on you know what we plan on doing with the data, um, and the reality is you know people need access to to this data. People and and not necessarily information that could lead back to identifying you. It's it's the other data that's really most valuable. Like for example. The someone's results on a certain clinical scale are by no means identifying. They can't ever link that back to you. Um, so these are the types of information that we really focus on, the information that really can't be led back to um, to the participants that that have donated the data, that have taken their time to, to join our programs, to participate, um, because it, it does take time. And, you know, there isn't remuneration or anything like that. They're really doing it to help. Um, better understand the disorders. And uh, we work really closely with stakeholders like the Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario. Uh, we have a very close working relationship with Dr. Ann Kavukian, who's the previous um, uh, Privacy Commissioner. You know, she, we're very, very fortunate to have um, such, a, uh, such a leader and, and someone who looked so far ahead and, and developed the privacy by design uh, system as as a means to promote the use of data, but to maintain privacy at all at all times. And you know, in terms of engaging with other stakeholders, we work very closely with um, patient advisory groups. Who, uh, like for example, the Alzheimer's Society, um, Parkinson's Society, and and various other other groups that that work closely with the patients um, to you know to help us uh, communicate, and so that they're they're also aware of the types of things that are going on with the research data generated from OBI-funded programs. So what you guys have been able to do is pretty freaking amazing, at least even to someone who has no idea what you're talking about right now. But it looks impressive. And I'm wondering, because one of the big issues in the space of open gov and open data is the installation of such an initiative. So my question for you is, is how long did it take for you guys from, you know, we don't have brain code, to the point that you guys, you know, release brain code. How how long did that take? Oh well, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I so OBI was founded in two thousand and nine. Got really going in two thousand and ten, um, and brain code came to bear around uh, twenty 
2013. Um, it's still under development, but I think a lot of the work on governance and privacy and working very closely with uh, you know our researchers and our and you know th those stakeholders, so the, the privacy officers at hospitals and research ethics board. Um, that's that's taken some time, and and it's because it's a uh, it's a different approach. So one of the things, one of the important things that OBI strives to do in achieving its mission, which is improving brain health for persons with with brain disorders, and and just brain health in general, um, is to change the system, to change the way research is done. So this is 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 kind of a fundamental system wide change that starts from the researchers and extends through to the institutions. It extends also to the participants, you know, how they provide their data, what happens with their data. Um, and it, again, it all loops back to, to communication and transparency. So it's taken, it's taken some time, um, about a year to, to, from the time contracts were signed through to the time that we are you know, now getting data into brain code to, to be shared and, and be used and that sort of thing. And, and you know what? You guys are doing some great work. And I just realized that we didn't actually give the acronym for what Brain Code stands for, which is <laughs> Brain uh, Center for Ontario Data Exploration. So that's Brain Code. And like I said, this is a great example of what privacy by design looks like. And uh, I can't wait until it gets instituted in more organizations, both from the government and uh, the private sector. So thank you so much, Luca, for, for joining us here today. Oh, that's great. Thanks a lot, Richard. It was a, a pleasure to, to join you and Samir. Thank you. That was Luca Pisterzi from Toronto, Ontario on the Open Government Podcast. If you have any questions about today's episode, you can reach Luca or go through the OBI website at braininstitute.ca. And of course, you can always send us questions on the hashtag at OGTPod. Thanks as always to Cheryl's Crush for providing the podcast music. Until next time, I am Richard Pietro. And I am Samir Vasta. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back soon with our next interview with someone in the Open Government community.